which led her to co-found LIPA. She also talks about the unique digital preservation challenges facing law librarians today. So this is pretty interesting. Take a listen and stay tuned for more great programming from This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. My guest today is Margaret Mays, Executive Director of the Legal Information Preservation Alliance. Well, Margaret, welcome and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Tell me, let's start with your background as a law librarian. Um, For me, it was a specialized field uh, really right from library school. um, Before I went to library school, I worked in public libraries and thought that that's what I would go back to, Um, but I happened to go to a library school uh, where there were a couple of courses taught relating to legal bibliography and law library administration, and I got a part-time job in the law school library. This was at the University of Denver, and I kind of got channeled in that direction uh, from then on, so uh, it was of interest to me, and I was fortunate enough, enough to uh, find some jobs in that area and uh, launched a career um, with that specialty. When did you um, branch off into being a law librarian? About what year? I finished library school in 1975 and my first job uh, right after that was in a law firm. So right from the beginning I was in law librarianship. For a short time I had a clerk job with a corporate law firm. And that was in the early 80s. So I remember LexisNexis being a very big part of the operations. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about LexisNexis and I guess the role of databases? Going back, wow, if you were in the 70s and I was working there in the 80s, how far does the use of databases go back in law firms? Um, Really, back to about the mid-70s, when Lexis began um, as a a project uh, 
boy, this is really taking me back a long time. Um, the Ohio Bar Association uh, began as a project uh, in the state of Ohio to develop a full-text database of Ohio materials. And eventually, uh, that developed into the Lexis service. Uh, and really, the, the law discipline is one of the first disciplines to have a lot of full-text material available in data, databases. If you remember back then, a lot of the databases were indexing and abstracting services rather than full-text. Mm -hmm. But Lexis developed as a full-text database of primary materials and later secondary materials. And by primary, I mean primary legal authority, um, like uh, case reports, laws, uh, statutes, uh, regulations, things like that. And then the West Publishing Company, which was one of the big print publishing companies, developed a, a similar competitive database, also full text, uh, a little bit later than Lexis. But for a long time, to have two very major full text databases for the discipline of law was pretty unusual. And so you're quite accustomed from the beginning of your career to working with databases. Mm-hmm, yes. Although I, I actually began as a technical services librarian, so I was really, uh, I began in cataloging and later acquisitions and collection development where I had less reason to use the full text databases um, than I did later on in my career when I did more reference and some teaching of legal research. But uh, yes, it was, it was pretty common. I mean, it's something that most people coming into a law library uh, as a, a staff member or librarian would, would at least get a cursory introduction to learning how to use those databases. So when did you start getting a glimmer, or you and your colleagues getting glimmers of preservation of this database material being an issue? Well, I would say much later. Uh, you know, initially we didn't really think about print ever going away. Uh, and so the preservation that we talked about was more about print preservation, um, binding materials and conserving paper and things like that. But I, I would say sometime in the late 90s and early 2000s, as material or information began to be published in electronic form originally rather than published in print and then converted to some other format, um, people began to talk about, you know, all this digital information and what's going to happen to it. It sometimes disappears faster than we can keep track of it. Websites would disappear and um, material that came out in different versions would perhaps only remain intact in one version and the earlier versions would be lost. So I would say, you know, a long time after full-text databases came into being, people started thinking about the disappearance of electronic information. But what kind of, in the late 90s, what kind of electronic publications were there in the legal field? <laughs> oh, goodness. In the <laughs> late 90s. It's hard to go back and think about it now, you know. It's just it's so much of a part of our everyday life and research uh, to use the Internet for things. But um, I think that... Uh, Actually, government publications were among the first things that came out in um, electronic form, and governments stopped, state governments and the federal government stopped printing. 
some materials and began issuing them only electronically and I think that that would be probably the best example of something that came out in the 90s or you know 10 or so years ago that was born digital um, and that's the kind of material that law librarians and legal researchers rely on quite a bit anything published by government agencies so that was quickly uh, a source of concern for us. Right, so you could tell that there's a good possibility that uh, it wasn't being covered, it wasn't being curated, that it might just come and go. Right. So in the early 2000s, in the early aughts, as you're growing more concerned, you and your colleagues are growing more concerned about the preservation of the information, was there any specific type of information that was at risk, or, or was just digital information in general? Well, really it was a whole range of things, and not just digital information. I mean, I, I know we're here to talk about digital information, but uh, we were concerned about the loss of some print materials, too, that were disintegrating um, and perhaps had not been reformatted into uh, either a, a digital or a micro format. Um, but in terms of, of digital information, I think we could see that the future was going to bring more born digital materials, that more primary source material like laws and statutes and case reports were going to be someday published only uh, in digital form and not in print. So we'd have to find ways to preserve the technology or to refresh the technology and preserve the information as it was originally published. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I don't think that it's one particular type of legal information. I think it's both primary and secondary materials that people are concerned about. Now, where were you at the time, uh, Margie, in, in the late 90s? Where was I working? Yeah. Um, I, I In the late 90s, I was um, uh, working at the University of Minnesota in the law school library there uh, as the assistant director for collections and technical services. And shortly after that, in, in 2001, I moved to the University of St. Thomas, um, also in the Twin Cities, uh, which was beginning a new law school where I had an opportunity to build a collection from the ground up essentially building a new library, both in terms of a physical space and in terms of programs and services with a great staff. So immediately we began talking about what kind of collection we were going to build and how much print we were going to have and how much electronic we were going to have, what sorts of resources we would rely on. And so the issue of preservation, you know, really was kind of in the front of my mind right from the beginning of that position. What kind of challenge was that for you? Well, it was a huge challenge. I, I, you know, I think even at that time we couldn't have predicted what was going to happen with the proliferation of digital information. And the example I always use is there was a major, a major microform set that we purchased, and because we thought it was essential, it was a secondary source, but it was major 19th century legal treatises, legal monographs. And it had been filmed and was available in microfiche, and we thought that was an essential purchase. Well, within five years, that became a digital product. And no one could have ever predicted at that point 
that the technology was going to be such that that material could be digitized in an affordable way. So, you know, we had we had the monetary resources to buy what we needed and to license the databases, but the some of the technical expertise just wasn't there yet to predict what we were going to need or what we were going to want or how information dissemination was going to change. Mm -hmm. With a rapid change from microforms, let's say, to all digital stuff, did, did you get more and more people coming to you and saying, I want this kind of information or I want to do this kind of search and almost be impatient that you couldn't do it fast enough? Did you change to keep up with your users, your clients, as well as uh, what you knew as a professional that you had to change? To some extent, we did. I think that what colleges and universities and certainly professional schools are seeing is that younger students assume that material will be available electronically. You know, they go to the Internet first, they go to Google or whatever search engine they're accustomed to using, and they assume that they're going to find what they're looking for, that it's out there somewhere in some electronic form. Mm -hmm. And that's not always the case. Um, in, fact, in fact, often it's, it's not, and uh, particularly if you're just doing a you know, a, a, a wide-ranging natural language search on, on Google to actually come up with pinpoint piece of information is not always going to happen. So the challenge has, you know, has been for not just law librarians, but all types of librarians, I think, in the last 10 years to keep up with what the younger generation and generations and um, younger researchers expectations are about how they will find information and where they will find it and how they can manipulate it or use it to their advantage. But there's a, there's a lot more responsibility, of course, with a law librarian because uh, I, I like this, this quote that you opened one of your reports with, that legal information is at the core of democracy. Mm -hmm. So... And you m mentioned authenticity, the importance of authenticity in, in uh, digital legal documents. So if I were just a liberal arts student doing research on some writer and using Google as a resource or Wikipedia, the information may or not be accurate. It be might be close enough to work with, mm -hmm. but your field depends on authenticity. Yes, it does. If you're going to rely on the law, it has to be the authentic law. And so whether you're doing some sort of legal research for a paper in law school or, or you're you know, representing a client in court, you have to be sure that the information you're relying on is authentic. So how do you guarantee that? Is that a digital preservation thing? Is that a file format thing? Is it something that uh, comes out of policy? Or how do you guarantee authenticity of a, of a digital document? Well, that's an issue that we're still struggling with. I mean, ideally, you ought to be able to guarantee it by knowing where it came from and, um, you know, preserving it in its original form. But a lot of digital information can be manipulated. And so guaranteeing its authenticity is one of the challenges that, that we face that um, is, I think, probably not unique to law, but, you know, probably as important to law as anything else is. And, it, um, you know, there are various uh, encryption and authentication services that are available, but we continue to worry about how technology can 
be used to um, maybe overcome those or manipulate those. So it's, it's an ongoing struggle. And I don't, I am, don't actually pretend um, to understand the technology that underlies some of these secured uh, methods. Um, that's, not, that's not my area of expertise. So uh, all I can say is that people are working on it and uh, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> doing good things. <laughs> so, it, so it is very much a concern for you but it's not oh definitely yeah, yeah. it's not your area of focus to solve that kind of authenticity no it isn't although it you know uh, other organizations like the american association of law libraries which is my primary professional organization uh certainly are focused on that and working with um other organizations like the american bar association and and others to um ensure authenticity of, of digital information now that you've mentioned the American Association of uh, Law Libraries, let's talk about that, please, and, and the birth of the Legal Information Preservation Alliance. Was it born of AALL? No, not exactly. Um, AALL was a co-sponsor of the founding conference that we held in 2003. But uh, the conference, which was initiated by the librarians at Georgetown, really was intended to be sort of independent of any other organizations, uh, uh, you know, co inviting and collecting a group of people who are known to be interested in uh, preservation and interested enough to actually want to work on, on something and uh, to talk about the possibility of creating an organization that could operate independently and really focus, you know, have as its primary mission, uh, focus on preservation. So AALL has been supportive in many ways, from co-sponsoring that, that conference to hosting our website, for instance. But we're not an arm of AALL. Mm -hmm. Working in the library in, um, did you say Minnesota? Yes. How did you become involved with the administration of, the, uh, of LIPA? Uh, well, I was, um, I was at the founding conference. I had been really had been interested in preservation for most of my career and in my various jobs I had responsibility for preservation which you know in the early days as I, I said before generally meant binding and conservation of, of bindings and proper care and conservation of print materials but as the profession evolved my interest in preservation of digital information also evolved and so I was at this conference, and I was—I uh, and my library were a founding member of the Legal Information Preservation Alliance. And I, you know, as, uh, we we worked for probably five years with just volunteers, those of us who were interested and committed to the work, getting the organization off the ground, setting up a governance structure, um, creating a strategic plan, all those kinds of things that organizations do until we reached a point both in size with a, a healthy enough membership base and in scope with more projects to do than our volunteers could handle that we could hire a staff member. And uh, this coincided with a, a time in my life and career when I was looking for a change. So I became the executive director of LIPA and um, it is a half-time position, um, but it, it, I don't currently work in a library, so I, I left 
my library situation and um, you know, charted a new career path. Being an executive director of an association is quite different than working in a library on a day-to-day basis. But I had a lot of association experience through my professional activities and I had the commitment to preservation, so it seemed like a good fit and so far it's worked out. So the influence, since, since LIPA is uh, now a, a member of uh, NDSA, LIPA is it's a prominent, influential digital preservation legal library organization. Well, I like to think so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and your list of libraries is uh, counted, I think, 111 member libraries, including the Law Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. So that sounds encouraging as far as helping to set policy and best practices and all you because everybody mm-hmm. needs to be on board well our you know part of our mission is to create partnerships we're a consortium of, of law libraries and the consortium is meant to foster collaborative projects among the libraries that are members and part of that mission includes developing partnerships with appropriate organizations. So in my role as executive director, I have tried to reach out and connect with some of the organizations that are important in the field of preservation, and certainly the Library of Congress would be one of the chief uh, players in that area. And the things that they've done through the NDIP program over the last 10 years have really furthered the preservation mission for a lot of institutions, but, you know, also the, the research and the technological development, best practices, standards, all of that in mean, the conversation in this country really centers in the Library of Congress. So that was an important partnership for me to seek, and we've been fortunate enough to have been included in the last, uh, in a couple of NDIP activities and to be invited to to join the National Digital Stewardship Alliance. I'm very excited about it and think it has great possibilities. Can you talk about your NDIP activities? Well, um, really, we we have only um, just started being at the table to be part of the conversation. We don't have any specific projects that have been done or started. So it's just, it's all very new for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a couple of things that we're particularly interested in with uh, the NDSA, including the, the content registry that the content working group is talking about, because a, a registry is something that we in LIPA have been interested in and working on for a long time, but it's, it's a hard thing to pull off. And the other area would be the standards area, that we continually answer questions from our members about, you know, what are the standards, and are there standards, and how reliable are they, and what should we be doing, and that kind of thing. So I just feel like I have a lot to learn from the partnership and from the the other organizations that are involved in NDSA and have been past end of partners. You mentioned in one of your... uh one of your reports or point out that there are 51 different legal systems in the U.S. There's the federal system and each one of the state systems, so there's a lot to track there. Is Mm -hmm. LIPA's prominence giving those 51 systems someplace to look toward for uh, standard setting? 
That's an interesting question. You know, the majority of our members are law school libraries, and I think we have gained a lot of prominence in that academic environment. We have a much smaller number of state law libraries and a few federal libraries. Um, and we'd really like to increase our membership in state, court, county law libraries because we want to touch those 51 jurisdictions. Um, we want to uh, have um, more relevance to the states, but, you know, states are suffering from budget issues yeah. and um, even a, a relatively modest membership fee is too much for some of the libraries that we've approached. But many of the states are doing fabulous preservation projects. And again, I could learn from them about some of the standards and best practices. Several of the NDIP partners have worked on multi-state projects relating to legislative materials. And those are very uh, much of interest to LIPA and its members because they're working on standards and best practices for preserving pretty important legal information that comes out of state legislatures. Mm -hmm. So I hope that we can continue to establish more partnerships with some of those agencies, even if, we, even if they cannot afford a membership. I would like to be more of a touchstone for some of those organizations. I am the only staff member, and I am a half-time person. So we still rely quite a bit on volunteers, and we've attempted to try to find uh, one person in every state that can keep us informed on what's going on with preservation of legal and government information in their jurisdictions. But, uh, you know, people are busy. It's not, <laughs> always, it's not always possible to find someone who can make the commitment or stay on top of that. One person in every state, so it, academic libraries? Or? It, could be, it could be anything. Uh, you know, it'd probably work uh, best if somebody was connected to what's going on with government agency preservation, and, but it, it could be anyone, anybody who wants to make the commitment to, you know, monitoring that and establishing the partnerships across their state's government and being in the right place at the right time to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. What benefits do LIPA members have that non-members don't? Well, I should start by saying LIPA doesn't have collections of its own. Okay. Um, uh, we, we're not a repository or um, a library. Um, we're really facilitating collaborative projects uh, for our members. So among the benefits that our memberships have are discounted programs for use of some of the services that are out there. We have established a legal information archive with OCLC using the Content DM service, mm -hmm. and that came out of a pilot project that was started by three of our member libraries, I think it's four years ago now, the Georgetown Law Library, the Maryland State Law Library and the Virginia State Law Library collaborated on a project using OCLC service as a pilot to see if it was something that could be used and transferred to other library situations to capture and preserve 
Born Digital Legal Information. That's the uh, Ches- that's the Chesapeake Project. The Chesapeake Project, yes, which is now has a slightly different name. Um, the Chesapeake Digital Preservation Group, they're called now. But we have uh, worked out an arrangement with OCLC to offer that service uh, with a discount to our members so that other libraries can form similar types of projects or partnerships to the, what the Chesapeake Project has done and to perhaps capture and preserve some of the born digital information from their own regions or in particular topical areas that are of interest to them. So that's, that's one benefit that we've offered. We've recently also set up a program with Archive-It so that our members can participate in a subscription that we have with Archive-It at a lower cost to archive websites. And those, you know, those are just a couple of the projects we're doing. We, several years ago, did one of our earliest projects was to develop a preservation inventory um, that now hasn't been updated in about five years. Um, And that was an inventory of everything we could identify that had been preserved in one form or another, which could mean also print and microform as well as as digital, but part of our interest in NDSA and the content registry is a means by which we could update that preservation inventory and keep that up to date as as part of a content registry, which would be a real benefit to our membership. Is LIPA working with any commercial publications? Commercial publications? I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, I guess I'm thinking of LOCKS and how LOCKS maintains, you know, electronic uh, uh, journals. We very much hope to work with LOCKS. We haven't established that connection yet, but we do have an arrangement through B-Press, and I don't know if you're familiar with B-Press. No. B-Press is Berkeley Electronic Press, which is one of the major providers of institutional repository software and services, uh, which they call the Digital Commons, and a, a fairly significant number of academic law libraries have started institutional repositories using ePress's digital comments. Well, this is getting convoluted, I'm sorry. Um, ePress has an arrangement with clocks. The closed locks. The the closed locks, yes. Service for ePress's own journals. And they have partnered with us to offer the clocks service to any law journals that are part of law library institutional repositories so that those journal, the journal content in those repositories can be part of the CLOCKS program. In your field, as in the other fields such as there are the Hollywood people who are preserving films and state archives who are preserving state archive things, you are taking care of legal information, trying to make sure that you and your people are aware of and adhere to best practices. Yeah, I think that's, that's really, that really says what we do. I mean, we try to keep, keep it in the forefront um, and make sure that, um, that best practices are being followed and that standards as they're developed will be followed and that um, people will think about refreshing uh, information when technologies change and that kind of thing. You don't get bogged down, it sounds. You don't get bogged down with the technical too much. And I'm thinking of um, 
digital files that are born archival. They contain so much metadata, but that means that they have to adhere to certain standards. You already said that with the encryption and all, you, you try not to get too bogged down with that. Right? Well, I, I consider my role right now as the executive director of LIPA is I'm really an administrator. I really facilitate collaboration and, you know, try to put people in touch with each other and create partnerships and further the mission of the organization that way. It's really the librarians out in the field, whether they're members of LIPA or not, who are going to carry forward the real preservation work. They're really the pioneers. Mm -hmm. They're the people who are going to understand the technology or, work, or be able to work with the technologists and do the, the work that needs to be done. I just help people find each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, Perhaps a... I'm a matchmaker. I don't know. 